When lives collide on a city's new path forward, in my city or yours, stranger things happen. I'm Patty Baker, and my book consists of a whole bunch of diverse, super short, overlapping stories, each inspired by original street photography I shot in and around the Atlanta Beltline. Today I'll share with you the storyline of one of my favorite characters, the priest. Story one, in a city known as Terminus. In a city originally known as Terminus, there is a new path forward. And when people who would never have met otherwise cross paths, stranger things happen. There is a girl with a glockenspiel. She comes at night. She hangs upside down in a tree and plays Ode to Joy mournfully. There is a broken-hearted man with a dartboard and a woman who rides a unicycle who finds something shocking. There is a graffiti artist who walked a fish, seriously. A homeless man who wears the same shorts every day. A young woman in a duck mask. An old lady who once marched on Washington. And a priest who can't be saved by prayer. There is even a Santa in an airstream and a whole bunch of people affected by lizards of all things. I know this perhaps sounds absurd, but it's not. This kind of stuff happens. I might as well tell you. Lives are about to collide. Folks are about to fall in love. People and dreams are about to die and others will be born. And through 76 different stories, or is it just one? People will try desperately to find their path and place in a city face to face with the pride and pain of change. And I think it's only fair to warn you that as a result of reading this book, you may never look at strangers the same way again. So get comfortable or not. But don't listen to me. I'm just a couch left as trash or art. What do I know? Note, all photographs are original street photography taken recently. Efforts were made to distort the photos so the individuals are unidentifiable. All stories are fiction. Any likeness to real people throughout this book is unintentional. A new path forward in a city in the South, however, really exists. And I was really left on it. Story seven, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. Your turn, the old lady said, nodding at me, her rosary beads dangling in her hands as she headed off to a pew to say her Hail Marys. I opened the door and entered the little boxy space, which was like a phone booth, but not, and bent down on the velvet kneeler. This activated the light that let the priest know he had a congregant seeking penance and should open the little door that separated our faces, even though they would still be distanced by a screen and darkness. I soon saw his shadowy profile appear. Father Christopher said nothing, so I started as usual. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It has been six months since my last confession. I almost said this is Jamie, but then I remembered about the anonymity thing. And what were your sins, he asked. I was about to list them all yet again, but seriously, was this really necessary? They were always the same, blah, blah, blah. Oh, you know, the usual, I answered. What do you mean the usual, he replied, tilting his head in the shadows. You know, I stole, I lied, I coveted, I cursed, the usual. I mean, come on, he hears this stuff all day. This can't be surprising. And do you feel any remorse for that? He sort of snapped. Shit, I'd forgotten about remorse. I usually just stroll in here every so often and get a clean slate. I say my sins and he tells me what prayers to say and then does the sign of the cross. That gets the stains of sin removed from my soul. And this is important if I want to get into heaven, or so I'm told. And if I don't go to heaven, there's really only hell as an option, having already bypassed purgatory and limbo. Really, you almost need a GPS to navigate the afterlife in this system. 
But today he threw the old remorse thing in my face. I had forgotten about that tiny footnote. He hadn't mentioned it the last few times. So I thought about remorse now and a feeling of doing something wrong in the past, a feeling of guilt. Well, perhaps if you were a diehard ethicist, you'd have a problem with me taking extra sweet mo's every time I go to Dunkin' Donuts, even though I never take the napkins or stirrers, and it sort of evens out, doesn't it? Or lusting over the neighbor's husband every time he puts out the garbage shirtless. I don't act on it if that reduces my sin a bit. And perhaps I could curb my tongue a little more and stop saying shit so often. And maybe I really should tell the total and complete truth when anyone asks my opinion. But was it really so bad to go to that concert with my roommate after she had that fight with her boyfriend, even though I never liked her kind of music, even though I said I did? And about my boyfriend? I'll tell him soon. I'll tell him I don't really love him. But no, I didn't feel bad or guilty about any of these things, except that they are supposedly on the sin list. And here I am, a victim of early brainwashings and a desire for a place to call home in all ways, including spiritually. I had liked the confess and cleanse loophole. It's like getting your teeth cleaned and then getting to start over again with red wine and coffee stains, with the exception of that remorse clause. And if he's going to harp on that, I think we're going to perhaps have a problem here. Well, Father, if you want the truth, and I'm guessing you do, I answered, sort of chuckling. Note, he didn't chuckle. I really don't feel remorse, but I am interested in you wiping my sin slate clean so I can start fresh, you know, sort of like a teeth cleaning. I probably shouldn't have added that part. He sighed. Do you think you will make the same sins again, he asked. This time I sighed. Father... I'm certain I'll do the same things again, I answered. If you consider them sins, then yes, I will sin again. But really, just between us here and the anonymous privacy of this slightly claustrophobia-inducing boothy thing, does this really matter, these little sins? I'm basically good. I'm clearly trying. Silence. I got silence. And when you're kneeling in a dark box talking to the side of a shadowy head, that's a weird sensation. And frankly, my knees were starting to hurt. Finally, I saw his hand raise up. He was either going to close the little door between us or give me the blessing. You are absolved for your sins, he said. Score! I waited for the prayers. I have no prayers for you. Oh, shit. I realized I may have misread this one. This was worse than I expected. You have no prayers for me, as in no prayers can save you, or... No prayers are necessary because you're so good, I asked to clarify. It's important to clarify in these circumstances. I have no prayers for you, he repeated, because I don't want you to pray. I want you to pay. Pay? Was he asking me to bribe him? Just bring a box of sweet and low to Dunkin' Donuts, and we'll call it even, okay, he added. Okay, no bribery, but how did he know about the sweet and low? How did you know about the sweet and low, I asked. I was behind you in line earlier today, he answered. But wait, how do you even know who I am? You can't see me through the screen, right? I asked. What was going on here? Silence for a minute, and then he whispered, It's a lie. I can see you. Story 27, The Elephant in the Room Alone, finally, I hang up my vestments in the dim glow of a sacred candle, change into jeans and a hooded sweatshirt pulled up so I'd be unrecognizable, and head out into the fading light for a head-clearing walk. The words I say so often echo through the chamber of my soul. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Those words don't get easier, I realize. Sometimes I say them once a week, sometimes daily. Today it was for a woman whose confession I heard just three days ago, 
she apparently left the church building that day, went to the nearby community garden, where her recently deceased husband had a plot, and worked on it a bit, out of respect or responsibility, I'm not sure which. She then started to walk home, stepped off a curb directly into traffic, and was killed instantly by a passing car. Yes, she was elderly, and you'd think that would make it easier, but for some reason it doesn't. My faith feels rattled lately. Not my faith in God, but my faith in my religion. It wears on me that this elderly church-going woman's family felt comfortable having a church-sanctioned funeral, but the family of that homosexual young man who died after being harassed simply because of who he was did not. I question a religion that relies on the herd mentality of blind faith in words passed down over time like a telephone game where even translations of that simple phrase I say at funerals run five Google pages long. I know I'm becoming increasingly unworthy as a spiritual leader. I want to reveal truths, discrepancies, all the elephants in the room, so to speak, currently shrouded in secrecy. And to say this is frowned upon by my supervisors, and I'm not talking God here, is an understatement. I even told a young woman who came to confession right after the elderly lady that anonymity in the confessional was a lie, that I could see her. If that gets back, I'm pretty much well on my way to being, what, defrocked? Is that what they call it? I'm losing it. They're losing me. I pray for guidance for what I should do next, and I don't fear it. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death of my blind faith in this religion, I will fear no evil, for God is with me. Story 29, A Very Bad Priest Father Christopher, it's me again, I said, kneeling on the red velvet, like the couch where I found the money. Oh, God, no, he replied. I could see him drop his forehead down into his hands. Was I that bad last time, I asked? I mean, really, I'm not. I lie, I cheat, I curse, the usual stuff. But I had one roommate in jail now for bashing her father's head in with a baseball bat, and I wasn't as bad as that. I just stole some sweet mo and sort of haven't been honest with my boyfriend about not loving him. It's just that, the priest sort of stuttered. I told you I could see you through the screen last time, and I shouldn't have told you that. I was wrong. People need to be able to rely on anonymity in the confessional box. But you know it's me now, right? I asked rhetorically. He clearly did. So why keep the lie going? If anonymity is important, why not improve privacy in here? If not, well, let's just get on with it. My name's Jamie, by the way. He didn't respond. You guys never have answers for my questions, you know. That's been a problem with religion, I said. So why are you here, he asked. Good point. I wasn't exactly sure myself. Well, it's not for my sins this time, I said, although I'm sorry to say I haven't replaced the sweet and low yet, like you told me to do, or told my boyfriend the truth. Go on. I looked around, looking for cameras. You'd think they'd have cameras in here, what with the general lack of privacy. Well, I found some money, I whispered. How much money, he asked. Like, more than a million bucks, I replied. Oh, for God's sakes, he said again. You can't be telling me things like this. I am in no position to help you. Look, I cut in. I'm not looking for legal advice. I just need some moral guidance, okay? Do you think you can give me that? I don't even know if I can, the priest says, said. What kind of priest was this? You are like the weirdest priest I have ever experienced, I simply had to say. We can't even talk some basic right and wrong here. Okay, okay, you're right, he finally agreed. Let's keep this simple. Is the money yours? If I found it, is it, I asked. Hmm, not sure, Mr. Helpful said. Well, let's see. It's often useful when discussing ethics to consider intention, 
does the money seem like it was intentionally left somewhere? The answer to that one was pretty straightforward. Yes. And do you think you may know who left it there, he asked. I have two guesses, one of which would be a good situation, an old lady who saved it all, and one of which would be a bad situation, drug dealers, I explained. But first, I'm not sure it's even real. Wait, so let's start there, he offered. Can you find out somehow if it's real? How, I asked. If I use it and it's counterfeit, I could get arrested. Not if you have no idea where it came from, right? But I do know where it came from, I said. The couch. And if I say that, I'll have to tell them about all the money. But they don't need to know about the couch, he countered. Why not buy the box of Sweet and Low with a 50 and see how it goes? And if they question me, I asked. You lie, he said, leaning close to the screen between us. That thou shalt not lie commandment was certainly not etched in stone around here. You know, you are really a very bad priest, I said, getting up to leave. I don't think I'm coming back here anymore. I heard him sigh, and then he muttered, I'm not sure I am either. Story 30. Two people torn. My head tells me one thing, my heart another. But what does my God say? This I ask myself over and over as I take my usual walk dressed in street clothes so I can sit on the piss-stained ground and help the druggies who call me Father Christopher by name, who know me, who love me as I love them. I help the homeless, the heartbroken, and the harassed, plus the many, many people in pain who don't let their truth show. I know, and they know I know, and our silence as we pass each other is somehow comforting. But I am two people torn, a servant of God and a man in all his desire. How do I reconcile the two without denying either? Does God require us to repress our true selves to serve him? Or should we instead celebrate all that we are in glorious honor of him and his perfection in how he made us? Let's be straight here. Does God care that I'm gay? Or rather, is God ecstatic that I finally realize this so that I can now get on with it and more fully do his work as he intended me to do it in this sorry-ass world in need? My God may tell me one thing, but my religion most definitely tells me another. The question now becomes, do I follow my head or follow my heart? Story 55, With Grace. I was there for Cezanne and the other post-impressionists, Modigliani, Pissarro, Van Gogh, and that guy, Kayim Soutine. He had grown up poor in a shtetl, the tenth of eleven children, loved to paint portraitures, but that was considered sacrosanct. When he asked to paint a religious elder, he got beat up. In a settlement, he got money to compensate for his injuries. The irony? He used the money for art lessons. God is funny. God has a funny way of ensuring justice somehow in this crazy mixed-up world of ours, or in the afterlife, I guess, if you believe in that. And I do. No matter what happens, my faith somehow can never be rattled, although I hadn't yet decided at that point to leave the priesthood. I mean, I had admitted to myself that I was gay, but I did not know yet if I could live a celibate life. That was the question. The answer came in about four minutes. I walked into the next room at the museum and ended up in a replica of a famous chapel in Florence, pews and all. I'm not sure what this had to do with the artists at the Paris Salon. There I was, and there stood Rafe. I recognized him from the news. I had never met Rafe before, but he haunted my thoughts for some reason, what with all the media coverage. His lover had died of a heart attack after gay bashers had chased them. Although born in the faith, his lover's family refused a church funeral because the church was opposed to homosexuality and they felt it would have been the ultimate lie, and he would have hated it. I kept hoping they would call me. I kept hoping 
I would be given the chance to handle it with grace. That's all I ever wanted to do, handle things with grace. But they didn't, and I didn't have the guts to call them. Maybe because I didn't trust myself. Maybe because I already knew I was gay, although I hadn't admitted it to myself yet. It took some young woman in the confessional questioning whether or not I could see her to make me realize I wasn't even seeing myself clearly. So there we were, in front of a huge replica of this chapel in Florence, and I knew for sure that God was laughing. Why else would he have waited until this setting for us to meet the irony of it all? And so I said hello. And that's how these things start. And that's how other things end. And there, with the grace of God, go I. Story 63, Four Funerals and a Wedding. Funeral 1. I left right after the funeral for my foster mother, Heather, who had been pushed onto a train track and killed while on her way to the Peace Corps. I was supposed to go to another funeral for my roommate, Sharonda, but I couldn't. I had to get air. I had to get on with it. I hopped on my bike and shot down the path to my apartment. I had the million dollars I found in the seam of an old red velvet couch stuffed in my jacket, and I was still debating what to do next. I didn't expect to run over the frog, and I didn't expect to see its guts, or to finally find mine. Funerals 2 and 3 We were going to drive, but John talked me into biking, although that felt wrong somehow, since that's how my brother Charlie killed himself, riding his bike into the ocean in Florida. I didn't even know he had lost his job. What kind of a sister was I? At least John had shown me how to be a better mother to Andy and Juliet, how to stop rushing all the time, how to not be the crazy woman my mother was. We had stopped all the after-school stuff, and we were all having more fun. We even took in my brother's dog, and he was a lovely old thing who liked slow walks. I didn't expect on the way home that Juliet would find a dead frog on the path, and that she and Andy would insist we have a funeral right there, right then. I didn't expect that that's when I would cry. I didn't expect Father Christopher, the priest from the funeral, to walk by right then and offer to say a few prayers. I didn't expect to feel so grateful. Funeral 4 and a Wedding Tim and I left the funeral for my ex-roommate Sharonda and her mother Bernice, who were both killed by a speeding car, and started to walk through the park. We had to get back to the hospital, to the ICU, where our baby was dying. Were living. We didn't even know. She had been born right here by porta potties set up for a festival about a month ago and was not expected to last the night. Her umbilical cord was wrapped around her neck. She was blue. We named her Helen Joy, Helen for heliotropic, which sunflowers are, which are my favorite, which explains why her father had one of the porta potties painted with sunflowers. Well, also because he was trying to show me that the little things in life would be special with him. And Joy, because I like to play Ode to Joy on my glockenspiel while hanging upside down from a tree. I stopped that when I got too pregnant. This was our first time out since the baby's birth, and for a funeral, not exactly a party. He had asked me to marry him before the baby was born by the sunflower porta potty, but I didn't want it to be an obligation on his part. And then, here we were, when the priest from the funeral walked by, and I grabbed him and said, Can you pronounce us man and wife? It's not legally binding, he said. You don't have a marriage license. I don't care, I replied. It's emotionally bonding. You spend every night for a month in the ICU with a man. You know the man. You love the man. Story 75. Come on in, precious. You have choices, Atlanta. 
Justin Johnson's calming voice said over the radio as I hummed Ode to Joy. Don't panic, don't panic, don't panic, Kimberly, I told myself, keeping one foot on the brake as I drove on the already slippery streets. You can try to drive home in this weather emergency, or you can stop. You can just stop. Park your car somewhere safe. Get out. Walk in the gently falling snow to a local business. Go in, say hi, and stay a while. Stay all night if you can. Get to know people. Learn their names. I'm Justin Johnson, your eye in the sky. But who is that person looking eye to eye with you? You have choices, Atlanta. You're not trapped by the bureaucrats in this city who have failed you. You're only trapped by the failure of your own imagination. To paraphrase Gandhi, you can be the change. I pulled over at the next open place I saw, on the corner of what Justin had once called the corner of the boulevard of broken dreams and the edge of nowhere. A church, or so I thought. A telephone pole filled with staples and tacks and the last of an announcement or two stood in front of it. A sign outside it said, no open or concealed Bibles allowed on premises. Another said, come on in, precious. And so I did. Unpriesting is not easy. Holy orders is a sacrament that lasts forever, supposedly, sort of like being a Supreme Court justice. I had contacted the bishop before the funerals, had said I needed to talk, but he had put me off. There was a bishop convention or something, a lot of brouhaha over Pope Francis and his radical leadership, helping the poor, living simply, opening the church's doors more fully to gaze, which meant me, although the bishop didn't know this yet. So while he was sitting in a pew among pews filled with others just like him, I was single-handedly burying half of Atlanta, or so it seemed, including a frog. The sacred part was knowing it would be the last time I would do that. That I knew for sure. So it's no coincidence that I would end up on this night of nights when God blanketed our little city with the purity of freshly falling snow at the most sacrilegious place in town, a bar named Church. Two women sat at the bar beneath the velvet paintings of Jesus, Elvis, and Martin Luther King, drinking spiritual sangria, the house specialty. One had a duck mask on, the other a fox mask. The duck was my girlfriend. I had news. I was nervous. I got the job, I said to her. She smiled, I think, and hugged me, although she knew this meant I would be leaving. What job, Fox asked. I'm finally going to get paid regularly again as an artist, I said. It's with a global outreach project to beautify an everyday experimental object. Oh, shit, Kurt, just tell her, would you, duck prodded? No pun intended. I laughed. Her pun was funny. But my job was, too. Life was, actually. Okay, so you know how that guy found me painting a mural in the tunnel and hired me to paint that porta potty with sunflowers to impress his girlfriend or something, I said? Well, after she had their baby right there on the ground and the media got involved and everything, this nonprofit named Commode to Joy, no fucking joke, called me. They want me to come work for them at their headquarters in Dublin. They're all about dignity for all. They want to bring some joy to public restrooms for the homeless in cities and people in refugee camps. And everyone, really. You know, we're all just one paycheck or political uprising away from being that person. And we all shit, Duck added. I was growing to really like her. Oh, my God, that's so cool, Fox said. And you know people in Ireland, don't you, from after you walked that fish? I had participated in a relay to walk a filled aquarium around the entire circumference of Atlanta's perimeter highway. Duck did, too. She had passed the fish to a guy I met in Ireland, where I flew immediately after delivering the aquarium to the finish line at the airport exit. It was a huge coincidence to meet him there, in that pub. How long will you be gone? Doug asked. I don't know, I said. 
Who knows where this could lead? You know, toilets today, the Taj Mahal tomorrow. Duck lifted her mask, and we just looked at each other a minute. We were at that point where the only way forward together would involve risk. I glanced around the room at the paintings. They said things like Jesus H. Crisis. He curls his hair with holy rollers and other things I'm really not even comfortable telling you. Risky shit to be putting on the walls in the Bible Belt. Yet the heavens hadn't come crashing down. There had been no riots. In fact, this bar had recently been named the most unique in the entire world by some magazine. And then she said it. What if I come with you? You know, just for a week or two. No big thing. I have a break coming up. You would, I replied, a little too eagerly, perhaps. But why not risk showing how I really felt? Why not take a risk, goddammit? Well, since I'm still finishing up my Year of Mornings project, she said. She was in her last semester of school and had gotten a grant to live morning rituals from around the world for a year as a way to come to terms with her mother's death in a society that really had nothing more than a three-day morning ritual. And I have yet to experience a true Irish funeral. Besides, please, no one say the word funeral, the guy with the guitar said as he overheard us while walking by. I played three of them in a row like a month ago already, and I'm still getting over it. I recognized him. He was the organist. We were at one of those funerals, I said, my ex-girlfriend's roommate. I was at one of your funerals, too, a guy who had been doing push-ups against the wall said, a woman I just started to date, Sharonda. That was my ex-girlfriend's roommate, I said. Small world, small, small fucking world. I was there too, the woman with the guitar guy said. I had been, well, in jail with her roommate, if you want to know the truth. And wait, weren't you the priest, Duck said, pointing to a guy just standing in the corner. Wasn't I the priest? Wasn't I a priest? A truer question has probably never been asked, he said. And yes, I was. Was. Now I'm just Chris. Oh my God, this is unbelievable, Fox said. Can I get a photo of everyone together? This could be a good story. Duck piped in. She's majoring in photojournalism. She just finished a project called Backpeak, where she took pictures of the contents of homeless men's backpacks. You know, like that photo of Gandhi's possessions. You took that photo of my backpack, a man said, high-fiving her with the ping-pong paddle he was holding in his hand. I didn't even recognize you, Fox said. Job, he answered. Job, as in working, but I thought of Job as in the Bible, despite the pronunciation difference, how he had overcome seemingly endless trials and tribulations, how he had prevailed. The door flung open, and a woman came in, carrying a big, overflowing basket dusted with snow. It was Corinne. She was the sister of my ex-girlfriend from like ten years ago. The girlfriend I taught how to ride a unicycle. Yes, you can do that with one leg. You velcro the foot on the prothesis to the other pedal. She died. Do you call a girlfriend an ex if she dies on you? I got fresh food, she exclaimed. We circled her like buzzards as she showed us collards and arugula and turnips and radishes and Brussels sprouts and kale. Let's cook it up, the owner said, taking the basket, handing it back to someone in the kitchen, kissing her on both cheeks, clearly knowing her. Yeah, and make sure we say grace before eating, Corinne said, because it's one of the last harvests we'll get. The city's paving the farm. I just got the notice. Thirty days. Why the hell are they doing that, I asked. Construction, she answered simply. It's the next stage of the path. And it didn't help that the remains of human bones were just discovered in one of the beds when that new lady did that soil test. I've had a whole lot of fun trying to explain that one. Holy shit, I said. Exactly, she laughed, motioning with her hand around the bar. But listen, I knew this was probably coming one day. It, it's public land. We were borrowing it. It's more valuable as condos, if you don't value community and health and safety and, well, whatever. 
And so it goes, although the carrots won't even be ready yet, or the garlic. And of course, then the land's not public anymore. But no one seems to care about our shared commons, air, water, land, or common people, for that matter. She laughed and shook her head. Whoops, sorry, she said. Didn't mean to lose my bubble of peace there for a minute. Pour me some sangria, okay? Look, I know your farm, the push-up guy said. A lot of my clients get sent there for community service. Maybe we should talk. I'm Jeremy. I do pro bono work with nonprofits. I could represent you. I need all of you to do some representing, the owner said, coming out from behind the bar, handing out a whole pile of coral robes. And that's about when organ karaoke began. We donned the robes, and the guitar guy sat down behind the organ and kicked off with Ode to Joy as the door kept opening and more strangers, snow on their shoulders, kept filing in all damn night. I joined him up there since, luckily, I had brought my glockenspiel. And who doesn't love a guy with a clock? And now I'll give you the final story in the book as the final sample for today. Story 76, Snow Falling on Couchy. It's not the snow that'll shut you down, it's the ice. And sure enough, that's what happened yet again in Atlanta. Nothing has changed since snowpocalypse last year when the entire city shut down after the roads froze over. Nothing, or perhaps everything. There's been a whole year of life and love and loss. Yet here we are again, iced in, and here I am, still sitting on this about-to-be-paved path that will somehow connect everyone, although there's a disconnect about that. I don't mind the ice. I'm not going anywhere, at least not today. But I see the construction people. I know the end for me is soon. I know I'm not really art to them. I know I'm junk. If I could, I'd stick my tongue out and catch the gently falling snowflakes. I'd twirl. I'd laugh. I'd make snow angels. I'd live out loud for whatever time I have left. I used to cringe when people looked at me, thinking of their own lost youth and beauty. But I don't really mind that anymore. I've grown comfortable in my skin, so to speak. I've grown to enjoy, relish even, my little part in the collective drama of existence. People have sat on me, gotten sentimental about me, and been sorry for me. They have stuffed me with money, stolen from me, and soiled me. And through it all, I have somehow mattered, even if it was just for a brief time. Isn't that the most any of us can ever hope for? Isn't that all we really want? I have a name now, you know. There was a girl, a woman really, who used to come at night and hang upside down on a tree branch, playing Ode to Joy mournfully on a glockenspiel. She comes during the day now, pushing a stroller. She points at me and says to her little girl, Say hi to Couchy. The baby's too little to care, but I care. I'm not just a couch anymore. And now new strangers cross my path, and yours. Or are they really strangers? Are any of us? What will become of our city? What path are we on? Do any of our stories even matter? Do we? Whew, that was a lot to read. Thank you so much for spending time listening to these excerpts from my new book, Stranger Things Happen. You can purchase it on Amazon in all global markets, and your support is greatly appreciated as I am an indie publisher. And I'd really love to hear what you think of it. You can email me at sustainablepatty at comcast.net. I know for me, the process of working on this book has really changed my life because I don't think I'll ever look at strangers the same way again. And the funny part, of course, is that stranger things keep happening right out there on our city's new paths forward. So get out there and enjoy it and see what stranger things are happening near you, too. Learning as I grow, Patty Baker.